Happy Watergate Day, everybody. This is the American Exception Podcast, and I'm Aaron Good. You are listening to the second episode of our Watergate double feature here on the 50th anniversary of that fateful botched burglary. I'm talking with Jefferson Morley about his new book, Scorpion's Dance, The President, the Spymaster, and Watergate. Jefferson Morley is a Washington author and veteran journalist whose novelistic nonfiction books explore untold chapters in the history of the American nation. Some of his other books include The Ghost, The Secret Life of Spymaster James Jesus Angleton, and Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden History of the CIA. If you are not already a subscriber and you enjoy serious discussions about the hidden history of the U.S. empire, please consider subscribing to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. You can take my parasite It's been a long way You called it from Jefferson Morley, thank you for joining us. Good to be here, Aaron. So I've just finished your new book, Scorpion's Dance, and it deals with Watergate and Richard Nixon and Richard Helms, uh, the two dicks. Yeah. And um, they were, you know, Rick, Richard is tricky, Dick, but Richard Helms might be the trickier of the two. Uh, why did yeah. you focus on Helms out of all the Watergate characters? It's Nixon. It's pretty clear why you focus on him. But why did you choose to focus on Richard Helms? I just thought I always thought the the CIA role in Watergate was was underplayed. And um, and I especially thought that when I, I saw the movie, All the President's Men, many years later, I, third or fourth time I'd seen it. And the, that early scene where where James McCord says, um, you know, he's arraigned after being arrested for the burglaries. And he says that he was working for the CIA. And Bob Woodward says, holy shit. And then. The CIA is never mentioned ever again in the book, practically. And I just thought with the passage of time and the more I knew about the CIA, as opposed to when I saw the movie the first time, I thought that was really conspicuous. And I went back to look at it and um, and I just found, you know, Helms was the CIA was much more deeply involved than was known at the time in the CIA's cover story. But these burglars were men who they had nothing to do with. I mean, th- that it was just a cover story. It was not true in any way. Um, there were deep, tie- deep and enduring and contemporary ties to, between the CIA and the burglars. The larger point that I, that I also thought, and this was kind of the point going into the book, was that I wanted to understand Watergate as a chapter in the history of the CIA, not just as a chapter in the history of Nixon's presidency. Because, you know, four of the seven burglars had you know, were CIA employees. Um, two of them were career employees and two of them were contract employees. Um, they all received, you know, institutional financial um, uh, logistical support from the CIA. So I was just intrigued by that role. And I thought the way of getting in was uh, through the through the lens, of, through the frame of the CIA. And then additionally, I thought, you know, if you're going to do a book about Watergate, you better have something new. You know, you better have something genuinely new because a lot of people have written a lot of books about this. And so I thought that frame would give me an opportunity to bring some new information into the into the Watergate story. And that proved to be the case. Right. By framing it that way as this uh, conflict with these two government officials, mm-hmm. uh, you, you are able to 
provide a good chronology of not just Watergate, but the events leading up to Watergate uh, that impacted U.S. history up to that point, and especially that particular uh, moment and the dynamics between uh, Nixon and Helms. One of those, which is radio, was radioactive then, and notably is still radioactive today, which I think is quite notable. I mean, we got to take that. We have to ponder that in and of itself. Why is this still so radioactive? That's the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. And how how does this factor into the relationship between Helms and Nixon? Well, you know, like a lot of people, like a lot of people who were interested in Watergate, I was always um, very intrigued by that the so-called smoking gun tape of Watergate, June twenty third, nineteen seventy two, when Nixon instructs Haldeman to tell Helms to shut down the FBI investigation, and he uses this threat that he tells Haldeman to tell Helms, you know, shut down this investigation or else it's going to blow open the whole Bay of Pigs thing. And everybody, you know, people who are interested in Watergate, that was the tape that led to Nixon's resignation. He resigned within two weeks. So that was the smoking gun in terms of his president, in terms of his guilt in obstructing justice. But, you know, what what was going on there? I mean, it, something else was going on there. That passage always intrigued me because I was interested in, in, in Kennedy's assassination. And, and Haldeman said that Haldeman wrote in his book that he thought it was Nixon's way of referring to Kennedy's assassination by using that phrase, the whole Bay of Pigs thing. He was actually talking about JFK. And, um, and I, find, I say in the book that, that I think that's correct. And I found this White House tape where Nixon and Helms talk about the Bay of Pigs. And, and, uh, and Helms is telling, I mean, Nixon is telling Helms, you know, why he wants these, this information about the Bay of Pigs. He had been sending, ever since the beginning of his presidency, Nixon sent John Ehrlichman, his domestic policy advisor, over to Langley to see Helms and to get these things on the Bay of Pigs. Ehrlichman always thought this was a little strange because the Bay of Pigs had happened 10 years before. It wasn't wasn't an issue in American politics. Even Cuba wasn't an issue in American politics by 1970. The Vietnam War was all-consuming. And so Nixon sends Ehrlichman repeatedly to, to Langley to get this. And he meets with Helms and Helms is a nice fellow and shuffles the papers on his desk and says nice things and then sends him on his way. And Ehrlichman never got anything out of him. He was completely frustrating. He went like four times in two years. And so he comes back in 1976 and says, he's not going to give me this stuff. He's, he's just not. He's only going to give it to you in person. That's what he says. So Nixon calls Helms in. And they talk about this, and 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 Nixon tells him, you know, why do you? This is why I'm interested. I need your help on this. I need the story. I need your on the Bay of Pigs. You've got to tell me. And he says, you know, I I know all about the dirty tricks. Nixon's very blunt. He calls it the dirty tricks department. I've lied for you before. I'll do it again. You know, he's really trying to get Helms on his side. Why do you need it? Helms wants to know. And Nixon says, the who shot John Angle. Okay. In, in context of a demand for documents about Cuba policy from the early 1960s, the who shot John Engel can only refer to one thing, the assassination of JFK. So we know for a fact, we have it in Nixon's own voice, that when he was seeking this material from Helms in person, in a face-to-face, very blunt, tense conversation, 
he had JFK's assassination in mind. And if you if you know the whole story of Nixon and Helms' relationship, you understand that that was true, that both men had been involved in the Castro assassination plots and the Bay of Pigs planning back in 1960 when Nixon was vice president and Helms was a very senior chief of operations in the clandestine service. So they weren't working together personally, but they were in the same room together planning this very aggressive policy to kill Castro and overthrow his government. So they both know about the plots to kill Castro. They get going when Nixon is vice president. Um, the, the, then over the course of the next three years, there are six different plots to kill Castro. Uh, the first is run by Howard Hunt, and the sixth is run by Dick Helms. So this background that these two men have is very present between them when Hunt is on the lam in, in, uh, after the burglars are arrested in 1972. So when, when, when Nixon sends Haldeman to, to, to tell Helms, you know, get in line, crush this FBI investigation or else it's going to blow the whole Bay of Pigs thing. That conversation with uh, Nixon in the, about the who shot John Engel, that was, only happened eight months before. So Helms knew exactly what Nixon was talking about. He was talking about JFK. And it was a very nasty threat. And and, and Helms blows up. He's very angry that, that Nixon has done it. He says, this doesn't have a damn thing to do with the Bay of Pigs. You know, Helms was very defensive on the point. And Helms Nixon knew this was a point of leverage. And, you know, the CIA historians even said, you know, this was a sore spot. And Nixon, you know, pushed it really hard, you know, really inflicting some pain on the guy. And that was the point. It was a real heavy duty power play. The point being that the politics of assassination, of assassinating Castro and how that might have been related to the assassination of Kennedy. That was this radioactive issue between the two men that, you know, was very made made Dick Helms very angry and made Richard Nixon very aggressive. So that that subtext of what was going on was very real. And Haldeman was right. That was a live issue. So, you know, that 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 legacy of the past between these two men was from 1960 to 1963. That was still with them when they were in these, you know, when they were president and CIA director about, you know, eight or 10 years later. Yeah, I I noticed that you years ago, you posted something about that conversation on JFK Facts. And that was where I got it from. I actually put it in my dissertation, <laughs> uh, which I, I guess was completed in March 2020, the like final, final parts of it. And that was the only time I'd seen that quote, because a lot of people know about the post Watergate arrests that he sent Haldeman over yeah. the whole Bay of Pigs thing. Vernon Walters and Dick Helms are there. Right. And right. it's like, yeah. so that that scene is more well known from people who read some of the JFK assassination books or Watergate books that are critical. But this other one, that was the first, I think that was the first time I'd seen it. And it was because I was Googling things related to that. And somehow it took me, I, I've gone to, been at your, your <laughs> blog a number of times over the years. So I have followed it, but that was the first time that that had been mentioned. And that I think is something that helps to explain uh, Watergate better because that's months before Watergate. It's like what, eight months before? It's in yeah, it was October 71. So it was eight months before the break-in. So you can, in a way, you can, I mean, the fact that we don't know what those guys were, that they were reporting to the CIA and that we don't know what they were going after in the Watergate Hotel, it 
uh, it supports circumstantially the idea that on the one hand, Nixon really wanted to get supreme leverage over the CIA and the forces behind the CIA, that he saw the CIA as a threat to his administration for good reason, because if you recognize that they quite, they may have actually been a party to, you know, eliminating one of your predecessors, then you got to take that seriously. And, uh, so then when the Watergate, when Watergate happens and it involves all these CIA guys and there, you see they're connected to Helms, who is trying to resist the leverage. I mean, I, I would do, do I, you have to suspect that on some level, perhaps Helms was trying Helms or forces aligned with, with whatever Helms represents were, had played Nixon in a particular way and gotten him like he was seeking to get leverage and take more control over the most powerful functions of the government and other forces were not wanting that. I mean, what do you, what do you think of that as a general hypothesis for how this may have happened without it being all one grand design? But, well, I think that, uh, I mean, one thing that's striking about the Nixon Helms relationship is despite their differences, their cultural differences and Nixon's hostility, generic hostility to the CIA, the two men did manage to get along because they were hardline anti-communists and they, uh, you know, they were of the maximalist view that there were really no limits on the CIA's uh, powers. And if the CIA thought that it was in, it was necessary to spy on people in the United States, you know, they would do that, even though it would violate the, the agency's charter. And, uh, and Helms sanctioned that repeatedly um, with the spying on the anti-war movement with the uh, mail intercept program, uh, uh, even with some even with some domestic break-ins, it's it's forgotten that uh, the Justice Department had identified another domestic burglary carried out by the CIA at Helms's orders. And uh, in 1976, the CIA decided not to charge Helms with that, even though the burglary had taken place in Fairfax, Virginia. Um, but they bought his rationalization that it was somehow necessary to protect CIA operations. So Helms w- had a very expansive view of the CIA's powers, which Nixon shared. And so, you know, I look at the burglars as a manifestation of Nixon's desire to take action uh, when he couldn't get the kind of legal authorization uh, uh, for for these expanded spying on his enemies at home, basically domestic surveillance when Nixon couldn't obtain those powers, ironically, because J Edgar Hoover objected, he turned to this more off the shelf solution offered by Helms. And don't forget another thing that I find in the book is it was, it was Helms who provided the burglars to Nixon. Um, you know, in, in, in June, 1971, a year before the break-in Nixon is raging against Daniel Ellsberg, the man who leaked the Pentagon papers. Uh, the Pentagon Papers were leaked in June 1971, and Nixon is raging against Ellsberg. He wants to destroy him. He wants to smear him. He wants somebody who, you know, who can take this guy on and do to do to Ellsberg what Nixon did to Alger Hiss. That's what that was Nixon's dream. That was his passion at that moment. And he's looking around. And he's asking Colson. He's asking Haldeman. You know, who could do this? Who could who could help me? And Haldeman says, "Well, there's Hunt." And uh, Helm says he's quiet, ruthless, and careful. That's the quote. And he's on our side and he wants to fight with us, but he's not a fanatic. And and that's when early June, 19, early July, 1971, 
that's when Hunt Hunt is hired that week. You know, so did did, Hunt, did Holmes really think that about Hunt that he was careful and I mean. Yes, uh, I mean, yes, uh, he did. I mean, I, I mean, he wasn't, but I think Helms believed it. I mean, Howard Hunt was a a, a kind of cosmic screw up. It, it's almost funny how how often he screwed up. You know, he was working with a guy in the Mexico City station in 1960, and he gave this guy a, a briefcase to to take to a meeting. And the guy went to a meeting, and he, he made one stop before he got to the meeting. He left his the suitcase in a car. He came back outside. The suitcase had been stolen. It had the name of every CIA asset in Mexico in there and the real names of the agents in the station. I mean, they went crazy. And it turned out that it, it they think that it just was some thieves took it and had no idea what it was. There was no indication that the information ever reached the Russians or the Cubans or anything. But it was a total screw-up, a, a big security violation, and it was Hunt's responsibility. So he had that kind of stuff on his record. I mean, I think Helms, Helms was about one thing. He was about serving the president. You go with the president or you get out of government is, was one of the lines that he used. And so if Nixon wanted burglars, who was Dick Helms to deny him his burglars? He would give him the best burglar he had, which was Hunt. Hunt was like Nixon. He was he was outspoken. He was very anti-communist. He was hated the Kennedys. You know, that was a good match for Nixon. And some of the other guys, CIA guys, were too straight-laced, you know, too liberal for Nixon. Hunt was a good match for Nixon. So Hunt, Nixon gets his burglar. Helms gets this, you know, bu- this guy's salary off his budget. That's always a consideration with Helms. He's an administrator as much as a spy, you know. And he still gets the intelligence that Hunt is providing. And he, you know, he, get, he, he learns about what's going on in the White House. So he sort of has a spy in the White House. He has a conduit for sensitive information. And he's pleased the president. So that was like a win-win for Helms. You know, until it blows up in their faces, the two men were getting along. So how else do you think Nixon may have represented a challenge to this, the CIA uh, institutionally? I mean, you, you do mention well, that he sort of excludes the uh, Helms from National Security Council meetings. Does that seem to be of a piece with other steps he took? Um, yeah, but, you know, he, he, Helms, Helms wormed his way back into Nixon's good graces. Um, initially, Nixon did want to exclude him, uh, and so did Kissinger. Kissinger was looking to sideline his rivals. Um, but Helms worms his way back into Nixon's good graces by things like the burglar. <clears throat> Helms is a big supporter in the invasion of Cambodia in 1970, when the rest of <clears throat> Nixon's cabinet is, is pretty divided. And, 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 you know, his own secretary of defense and secretary of state are opposed to it. Um, but the Joint Chiefs and Helms come along and say, yes, expand the war into Cambodia. And that's what Nixon and Kissinger decide to do. So you know, Helms backed Nixon to the hilt on some of these policy things. I don't. And and when 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 Nixon wanted to concentrate intelligence collection in the White House, um, he, he wanted control of it. And that was the so-called Houston plan, where DIA, CIA, NSA um, and FBI would all have representatives on a White House committee and all their intelligence would come into the White House. And the reason for this was Nixon wanted to expand spying on the on the anti-war movement and on the black nationalists. And so all these powers he's trying to accumulate, he can't get them because Hoover won't, J. Edgar Hoover won't go along with this plan. And so 
and Helms did. <clears throat> Helms was okay with the Houston plan um, because he had CIA representatives on the committee. And so, you know, Helms was inclined to go along with Nixon as much as he could because, you know, the president was his client. It's after the break-in, after the burglars are caught, that the, their interests really begin to diverge. I don't think that, you know, I don't think the CIA institutionally had a problem with the opening to Russia and China. I see no indication of that. In That was okay with Helms. If the president wanted to do that, Helms was okay with it. You know, I think the doubts were much stronger in the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the, and the military. But um, the CIA I, under Helms was pretty much willing to play ball with Nixon until the burglars are caught. And then Helms starts protecting himself and not protecting the White House. You say that he, Helms, was a guy who was all about serving the president, and that does seem to be the way that he presents his relationship to Nixon, and, and you yeah. know, for good reason, that Nixon can fire him, and so he has to be known for serving the president. But I, it always seemed to me that, of the people, like, when you look at the CIA and the Kennedy assassination, and I don't want to be saying, hey, the CIA did it, because I don't think it's very precise to say that. Yeah. I think if anything, it's it's quite possible that people at the top of other hierarchies, like the Secret Service, people like Dylan and um, even maybe Max Taylor, head of the JCS, they may like the Pentagon and the and Treasury Secret Service may have had as much in terms of like high officials being part of it. Who knows? But right. we could go on that about about that all day. I always figured at the CIA, Helm seemed to be not McCone the top person who would be a suspect in the assassination. And you, you, I would guess that you entertain such suspicions from time to time. If, how does that square with Helms as the uh, steadfast servant of presidents? Well, a steadfast servant of Nixon. Uh, Helms was not as a steadfast servant of, of Kennedy, as I, as I show in the book. You know, he was playing a kind of double game. Uh, pushing a, a a tougher Cuba policy that that Kennedy didn't want to pursue, um, so you know, no, I don't. I I, I I think the question of the CIA's loyalty is 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 much greater in the case of of the Kennedy administration than in the case of the Nixon administration. But for exactly that reason, that's why the subject of Kennedy's assassination was so sensitive to Helms during the Nixon years, because the, the CIA's had had a lot of problems there. And the more we learned about what had happened, the more that had come out, you know, the bigger their credibility problem was. There, a lot of their stories around the assassination were simply not true. Um, so, so, but I, I, I think what you're getting at is, you know, like where in the kind of larger institutional constellation of power in Washington, right? You have the White House, you have the CIA. And, you know, I think that Helms put that CIA, that instrument into Nixon's hands and said, you know, we will do whatever you want, you know, just, you know, tell me how to do it. Um, but after, after the burglars were caught, Helm, Helms had to back out. And so, you know, we, we, when we, we talk about Watergate, we talk about these White House burglars and, and that's really wrong. They were, the burglars were a joint CIA White House operation, uh, and sometimes the White House picked the targets, sometimes the CIA picked the targets, um, but they all shared the intelligence. That's one thing I, I, I show in Scorpion's Dance, I think. You know, both Hunt and McCord were feeding the information that they obtained from the burglaries 
primarily blackmail information. They were feeding that back to the CIA, both Hunt and McCord independently. So, you know, Helms, this was intelligence collection, which was Helms's, you know, that was his specialty was, uh, yeah, we, we can collect this information on the slide and, and not even have to pay for it, right? Because he's not paying Hunt's salary anymore. He's not paying McCord's salary. Anymore. So, you know, uh, when the when the the the, fam, the so-called family jewels, the collection of CIA documents about alleged abuses of power in this period, when those were finally released in 2007, Bob Woodward wrote a piece for the Post and and said, you know, the CIA was the perfect Watergate enabler, you know, and that's what that's what it was all about was the CIA really enabled the Watergate operation. It's kind of amazing because it, it does seem like Nixon, like the CIA enabled it, as you say, and they had links to these people. But the CIA, but Nixon's efforts to want to cut the CIA out of policymaking in a particular way and get leverage over the CIA, uh, you know, it seems like he wanted to situate these things in the White House rather than letting the CIA actually run it, which he probably could have done in a different way. Um, but he was he, he really did get played by by these guys. And, and the arguments that he has with, with Helms in 71 over these files, they're really, when you look at the arguments and Nixon, it's easy to think of him as a villain, but the arguments he's making about, hey, should the president be carrying out a policy? And then the next president's, his successors can't even know what, what was happening. You know, he makes these <laughs> sort, of, sort of arguments that are fundamental to uh, how we should think of this order that we live in, along with the fact of, Okay, when Nixon says the president does it, it's not illegal. People are scandalized. But if you allow the CIA to do whatever that is illegal without any supervision, and they're supposedly answerable to the president, really, what's the difference? I mean, how does this bear on, on bigger questions in our democracy? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. It was, um, you know, uh, when when Nixon said, uh, you know, if the president orders it, it it's legal. That was exactly Dick Helms's attitude, which is, you know, if, if the president wants dirty tricks, we supply them. You know, we're not going to sit around and doubt the president or doubt his authority to do it. We're going to deliver. Like he said, you go with the president and you get out of government. So, so you know, the idea that there were some strictures, uh, uh, some limitations on the CIA, they didn't think of it that way, just as Nixon didn't think, about, think, think about it that way. I mean, they were they did get caught up in this cultural change that, you know, washes over Washington at the time, which was really kind of the coming of the counterculture to Washington, where the years of lies about Vietnam, uh, the years of lying about the CIA, just the years of lying about the Kennedy assassination, they took this toll. And by the late 1960s, you know, respectable mainstream Washington journalists who once were perfectly happy to not question anything the CIA said, you know, they realized their own credibility was at stake and they could no longer believe these people. And so the, the attitude of, uh, in the press corps and in the Congress becomes much tougher and people start doing the unthinkable and saying, well, what's going on? And you have to tell us. And who are these people? And, you know, th all these questions that 
five years earlier, Dick Helms could make go away with just a, a phone call to Catherine Graham or a, you know, a, a, a visit to Senator Richard Russell, the chairman of the House Senate Armed Services Committee. Those solutions didn't work anymore because there was this much more pervasive mistrust that they themselves had created by so many years of lying. So that pushes the, you know, the aggression level of Congress and, and Congress asserts itself. And it starts in Watergate. And really only once Nixon is gone, then the, the Watergate investigation kind of it goes over and, and, and encompasses the CIA. And people start realizing, you know, the abuses of power were not just in the Nixon White House. The abuses of power were also over in, in Langley. And you have all these other scandals that come out that are not directly related to Watergate, but are kind of driven by the new Watergate ethos the mind control experiments, the assassination of foreign leaders, the domestic spying, all of that, all of that kind of stuff. Um, it then becomes public and investigated under the church committee in 1975, 76. So this big change also drives the situation that, that, uh, you know, Helms and Nixon find themselves in this, the stuff they could get away with, you know, before it, it doesn't work anymore. Right, but it, it it is a mystery as to why it wasn't working, because it goes back to under Reagan and under Bush, you return to kind of state lawlessness. Yeah, yeah, by, no, but, by and large. Yeah, and 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 the irony of one of the ironies of Watergate is that, and the Church Committee is that while the CIA seems to take this big hit in terms of credibility, and it does take a big hit in public opinion, the CIA never recovers from that people's cynical attitudes about the CIA, which are very common today on both the left and right, um, you know, uh, was new then. Um, and uh, 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 people weren't that, uh, people were shocked when these things came out about the CIA. And, and so um, they were hurt by this cultural change. They couldn't, they couldn't manage it. Um, but the CIA has to suffers some real blows. Their budget is cut for the first time under Presidents Ford and Carter. Um, thousands of people are, at least a thousand people are laid off from the clandestine service in the late 1970s. Um, and, and, and a whole new system of, of, of control was put in. The House and Senate Intelligence Committees are created. Dick Helms, or the CIA director, can't just go to one committee chair, which is all Helms had to do. Helms just had to go to Dick Russell and say, this is my budget. And Russell would say, fine. That was the extent of oversight. Now information had to be shared with the chairman of these committees, with the, with the leadership of the House, the, the so-called Gang of Eight. But by distributing the responsibility for covert operations and clandestine activity more widely in Washington, the CIA also bought itself protection. And so this system of oversight is actually pretty weak. It doesn't prevent the Iran-Contra affair. It doesn't prevent the institution of the torture regime uh, in, under President Bush. So, you know, and the CIA survives these scandals. So, you know, in a way, by, by spreading out responsibility, the CIA protected itself and protected its power and, and its impunity. The CIA didn't have the same extraordinary degree of impunity that it had in the first 25 years of the Cold War. But it regained a lot of impunity. And we've seen that over the years in the Iran-Contra and in the torture regime, especially. Yeah, it, this to me is one of the puzzles that I try to deal with, that I dealt with in, uh, in, in 
my graduate work and in my book is is why does this what does this clandestine state really represent because as you say they do fire people in the 1970s you have the church committee investigations one of the things they go into is the 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 church committee i believe it's the church committee one of the reports and it was jack blum and he got into the lockheed bribery scandal which was this conduit of cia funds but it's really intertwined with Lockheed Martin, you know, military industrial complex, vast sums of money, people who represent, who are connected to organized crime, but also <laughs> intelligence like Yoshio Kodama, who really founded the ruling party of Japan with stolen loot <laughs> that's, been, that's been in power ever since. And you, so you can crack down. It's like kind of like whack-a-mole in a way because they can crack down on the Lockheed bribery thing. And then that, that, gets switched around. But then around that time, you have things that emerge like, you know, uh, Nugan Hand or BCCI or Adnan Khashoggi, uh, you know, the the Safari Club, all these ways for the same things to be done. Helms even does a lot of these things as ambassador to Iran. He creates a, a a supranational intelligence thing to do the covert operations because the CIA is in trouble in the post Watergate era. And you, then you have Stansfield Turner and all that, but these guys that they fire like Shackley and Kleins, uh, they go and work for this Helms connected outfit, uh, you know, run out of, uh, the Saudi Arabia is involved with this, you know, that, and so I think that they never really get at it in the church committee. They don't get at what the CIA represents, which is not a office that just goes by its own bureaucratic interests, but that it is a, servant to uh, i think cor- the corporate power at the pinnacle of the u.s empire i mean do you, is your take on it similar to that or, or well, how, well how i mean in the lack of progress i guess after that when it should have been a defeat for the american right and the empire but it wasn't i think they're flying higher than ever under reagan yeah um i mean yeah their entrenched power was very great um and uh i mean i i, I think a lot of it goes back to Kennedy's assassination, where there was no accountability, and you know there was the, the official explanation was not a good explanation, was not credible. And Harry Truman was right. You know, the clandestine service was probably the source of the assassination, or probably involved in it, which is why Truman wanted to abolish the CIA after Kennedy was assassinated, because he understood what had happened. Um, but that didn't happen, and. When once that impunity was there, you know was established there, I think it was like it was sort of like anything goes. And even the further attempts at accountability, like the Church Committee, were superficial in the way that you know the extent, the size of the CIA, the fact that by then, you know, by the by the mid nineteen seventies, had been around for twenty five years, um, and um, its extra legal connections to organized crime, to drug traffickers, as a source of, 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 of covert funds, to fund covert operations. That, pra- that pattern and practice is so well established that, you know, a, a, even a reform-minded director like Stansfield Turner, who wanted to curb the agencies in certain ways, you know, didn't really get at, didn't get at it. And then when you have an activist cowboy director like Bill Casey come in, well, you know, it was open season and guys like Ted Shackley, who always operated on the edge of the law, whether they were had authorization or not, you know, 
you know, they went wild and, you know, they, they cashed in and they, you know, they were selling arms and they really were like, just took the whole intelligence business off the books. Um, and the Watergate reforms, you know, had very little to do with it. I mean, they went too far. They, they got careless and, you know, they got caught in the Iran Contra affair and a lot of this behind the scenes stuff unraveled. But again, you know, with the pardons, with President Bush's pardons of the three CIA officials indicted in the Iran-Contra affair, the investigation is short-circuited. There's no, there's no accountability in court. Uh, these guys walk free with, and claim they did nothing wrong. And there's, you know, the, the impunity returns. And so that, that measure of impunity survives. And when the, after 9-11, the uber hawks of empire want to reclaim all these other authorities to, you know, engage in torture and that sort of thing. They claim it and they get it. So the hand, the hidden hand of the CIA, you know, is, is, uh, exposed during Watergate, but it's not hindered afterwards. Right. I, and I would, I would say that it's not hindered because it is, it's power derives ultimately from its, the fact that it's indispensable for the richest people in the country, the people that make money by just sitting around and letting their assets accumulate vast. I mean, this is the richest ruling class uh, of in the world history. The wealth and power of these people is, is immense. It doesn't make sense to think like a democracy would vote. The people would agree if they were really informed and, and things had to play out a court transparently and so you you kind of have to have us the CIA, and so well, you can yeah, right, finger right. at them, but like they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna be around. It seems right, and and, and that's that's ultimately the the defense that Helms offers. It's 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 quite haughty, which is you know, if you're going to have a clandestine service, you're going to have people like me. Period. You know, and we are going to do whatever it takes. And if if you don't like that, then don't have a CIA. And that argument. You know, that that is the argument that has prevailed in the American government, which is this is indispensable. And whatever its problems, you know, we're going to we're going to put up with it because we don't we're not going to try anything else. So, you know, I don't get into I mean, the question that you're raising is, you know, is the CIA the tool of the White House or is the CIA the tool of the, you know, financial ruling class? I, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I, I guess what I would take away from my book is this, the hand of the CIA was much bigger in this Watergate period than anybody ever knew. And so that's a historical example. It's very safe to say that, you know. Yes. Well, but it's but it's true. And it's you document it very well. That's why I think your, your book is worth reading, because you are putting out a, a, a series of facts that are kind of indisputable. And you don't have to necessarily speculate about the forces that are controlling these, these things uh, as much because it, it's a, it's an open question at the end. And just to put it out this way, I think is a useful service. You know, and, well, and, yeah. go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, you talked about Helms's career in Iran afterwards and, you know, I, this is, this is the story of Nixon and Helms's relationship. Scorpion's dance is the story of Nixon and Helms's relationship and how it culminated in, 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 in Watergate. But it's not a cradle to grave biography of Helms. And so that very interesting question of, you know, what did Dick Helms do in Iran? What did he do during the CIA's ordeal of the mid 1970s? You know, I mean, he was a bitter critic of, of, of Frank Church and, 
you know, pulled every string he could to, def, you know, defend the agency then and, and to defend the Shah and to, like you say, develop these other extracurricular intelligence entities or, you know, networks. Um, but I didn't get into that because it really was sort of beyond the scope of this book. Um, you know, when our man in Mexico and the ghost are, are cradle to grave biographies, we follow these men from, from their youth to their death. Helms didn't interest me as much as a character as Winscott or Jim Angleton. He, he's just a, he was a bureaucrat. He, he wasn't as interesting a man. Um, and so what was interesting about him was his most interesting about him was really his relationship with Nixon. And so I really focused on that. That other stuff, it's, it, it, it is very interesting because, you know, Helms is instrumental when when the Shah wants to come to the United States for medical treatment after he's been overthrown. And uh, um, and it's Kissinger and Helms who really lobby for that. The Shah had gone to the same boarding school in Switzerland as Helms. Not at the same time, but they had this common bond of this kind of transnational elite, you know, and uh, and so and that 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 visit, uh, you know, creates big problems for um, for Jimmy Carter. And, you know, and then the hostages are taken in Iran. So Helms was very involved in that geopolitical cataclysm as well. Again, beyond the scope of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look at, uh, you know, Rockefeller was he boasts in his memoir about taking the initiative to use Henry Kissinger to lot to persuade Nixon that this situation in Chile was very serious. Yeah. And among the, among the other things that Allende was trying to do was he was saying that they were going to reduce their payments to international creditors uh, by taking into account exhort what he called, I believe he called them excessive profits. Yeah. Right. He was going to deduct those because these places like Kennecott and Anaconda mines were making like 60% profit a year because they're just taking a really valuable substance out of the ground and selling it, and there's a, so much of it used in Vietnam that, you know, that's a very lucrative thing. So he says this, and this is deemed like a real threat to these people. So Rockefeller exerts this pressure there. He was similar with uh, Galar in Brazil, um, probably in Indonesia, the biggest beneficiary of this that terrible ma- massacre of 1965, which is another reversal of Kennedy's policies. You know, you could argue a motive, a big motive behind his murder. Freeport Sulphur, uh, Freeport McMoran now, biggest gold mine in the world that they that falls into their lap in the aftermath of that. Uh, and then, you know, Rockefeller was also behind his Chase Bank uh, through Brzezinski and others. The other people that you mentioned, McCloy, John McCloy, these mm-hmm. are people that lobby for the Shaw in order to help Chase Manhattan Bank, Rockefeller's Chase Manhattan Bank. So these are... Uh, th- these are outside forces that, ex- that are brought to bear there. And it's a, uh, and Nixon had Kissinger who was a Rockefeller guy, but so was Carter. Carter was a Rockefeller guy as well. Uh, but he, he differs from him in some policy respects and Rockefeller is involved later in the October surprise. So he like, he brings Carter in <laughs> trilateral commission and all this, but then later you see, he actually turns against him and wants to make sure he's not reelected. Uh, and this is this to me is what you, your your book is for. In my trying to think about these issues, what you do and lay out here is is fascinating because I, I often think of these external forces in mind, but 
these guys themselves, especially Nixon, Nixon, I almost, Nixon tries to have his own theory in, in a way. He tries to formulate his own theory of like the deep state or the constellation of, of people who are out to get him. And he's not wrong. Yeah. About it. Like he can't, but he can't, he can't figure it out at the end. And the end, he doesn't even seem to understand, as you point out. What do you, how did these guys walk away from this whole affair? Like, like Nixon, what did they end up thinking about the way that this went down? Do you think that Helms considered this a total defeat for him? Or do you think that he felt like he moved the ball forward in his own way or, or, or what? Uh, I mean, Helms was, you know, Helms was shocked that he wound up being on trial. He couldn't imagine that with all his powerful friends, a bunch of lawyers from the Justice Department were still going to stick him with this thing. So, you know, that was a humiliation for him, not not enduring. You know, he like he said, he wore it as a badge of pride. But, you know, it, 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 it was a setback. And, and, and Helms was very upset. He was upset with Colby because he was very forthcoming with Congress about the CIA secrets. So, you know, the old order that he defended kind of had to give way. And, and his his uh, his prosecution was the sign of that. Um, you talk about that sort of the influence of transnational capital, if you will. Um, and we see that in, in the operation to assassinate General Schneider, which is launched at a meeting with Hen- Kissinger, Nixon and Helms in 1970, in September 1970. And <clears throat> right up before that, Helms is lobbied by John McCone, his predecessor, now on the board of directors of IT&T, which does lots of business in Chile. And so, you know, McCone is coming in and now he's not advocating for the agency. He's advocating for his client, for his employer, IT&T, and is pushing, you know, what turns into this assassination plot, which is supposed to prevent Allende, Salvador Allende, from coming power as the lawfully elected president of Chile. It doesn't work, but it's the first shot in the CIA's ultimately successful effort to get rid of Allende and get rid of the leftist government there. And this influence of capital, uh, uh, you see it in, in, in the lead up to this assassination plot. Those guys weighed in and Helms was you know, carrying their water as well. I see Watergate playing out in a way where as a civil war of the establishment mm-hmm. and that um, this it's, it's really over control of the world order to some degree. I'm going to, I'll send you a copy of my chapters on Watergate and you can, uh-huh. there'll be a quick, they're shorter, so they're not as long and it might, hopefully maybe I can spell that out <laughs> in greater detail if you're interested, but that you have this control. It's like a civil war and they damage the legitimacy of the state with it. I mean, a lot of secrets come out. And so it had to have been, there had to have been some serious motives behind it, which I think are really fascinating. Do you, what do you, the ultimate order that emerges is the U S you know, under Reagan, I think it really gets consolidated under Reagan and this new dollar regime where the shocks of the, 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 over, the overspending in Vietnam leads to this crisis in Bretton Woods, the, the Bretton Woods system that Nixon manages and with help with the, from the oil shocks, which do seem to be, there's overwhelming evidence in my estimation that the, the U.S. was behind those. They were all U.S. allies, the Saudis, the, the Iranians, the Indonesians, the big oil producers. And it, 
has a, a very beneficial effect on the U.S. financial position because it deals with the dollar glut that the, because of Vietnam spending. It uh-huh. deals with the balance of payments issues because these oil producing countries put this money back in the U.S. and it strengthens the dollar system. And additionally, Volcker's interest rates play a similar role, even though they cause a lot of disruptions and are bad for presidents like especially uh, Jimmy Carter. But by the time it's kind of ironed out and stabilized under Reagan, the U.S. is super, super powerful. And those the liberal policies of Nixon are totally abandoned. And so was his idea of some protectionism, uh, you know, like sort of sticking it to Japan and Western Europe a little bit to deal with this dollar issue. Mm-hmm. You know, the changes in policy actually from Nixon to Reagan are, are pretty substantial. And it really is the death of liberalism. And I think that has to factor into it. But these things are kind of, it seems like these things are sort of unraveling now. And the CIA, that in its heyday, could go ahead and get rid of Chile, even play a role in the downfall of the Soviet Union. Oil prices mm-hmm. played a big role in that. But, I mean, are, is, this the, is the order that was created in the aftermath of Watergate, do you see that as, as crumbling now? And well, does that the censorship we're seeing coming back and and the lack of accountability for for what appear to be crimes by the US and nothing happens and it just gets worse it seems well I think that that the, the 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 crisis of the national security state which was represented by Watergate and and the and how it evolved into the CIA scandals you know uh, that crisis has now I mean, it's repeated itself. We had Iran Contra. Um, we had the torture regime and the, uh, and domestic spying in the in the war on terrorism era, and you know, and very little ac- accountability. But you know, the, the credibility problem has only gotten you know much much worse. And so, when this national security establishment comes forward um, in in sort of a concerted display of hostility to President Trump over his Ukraine power play. Where he tries to enlist Zelensky in his campaign to smear Biden, um, and you know, kind of the the heart of the um, you know power establishment musters all of its forces for this this impeachment process and says, look, you know, this is a real abuse of our national security system, um, and it's you know we ha- it has the president has to be sanctioned for it, you know. Fifty senators shrugged their shoulders and said, "National security has nothing to do with it. This is pure politics." And so, those old claims that used to have weight and used to sway Republican senators—this is a national security matter. Nobody cares, and the reason they don't care is because these people don't have any more credibility because they launched and lost two wars that they said they were going to win and spread democracy. Both of them failed spectacularly and expensively. And so people have just drifted away and the, and, and the way the two-party system was anchored, both parties were anchored in this national, cons- this policy consensus out of the secret agencies and the National Security Act writ large. In popular terms, it just doesn't work anymore. I mean, getting tough on our enemies, you know, beating up on brown people, you know, that kind of stuff is popular. But this doctrine of Here's a bunch of experts in Washington who know about national security and you just got to do what they say. That's over. And so in that system, you know, that that consensus was key to keeping things going, even through the war on terror. You know, it got George Bush reelected. It's the only time a Republican has won 
the presidency outright in the last you know six times was 2004, where a, 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 the Republican candidate got the most votes. You know, that doesn't work anymore, and it's not going to work anymore. And so, yes, that system is breaking down, and that has a lot of effect on our, you know, on the political system, too, because now you have one party that is not moored in the, rooted in the establishment consensus at all, but is in fact entirely hostile to it, wants to overthrow it and put in an authoritarian system. So the old national they security- sort of do, don't they? I mean, the, like the, the Democrats want to censor everything. Uh, the, there's they a difference between Democrats information, and-, and I don't, I'm not saying there's no difference, but they, it just seems like they have a different flavor of a, of a, you know, authoritarian regime that they want to foist on us. And I, and I don't really like either of them. Uh, well, I just disagree. I mean, you know, the Biden, the Democrats are not talking, they're, they're not engaging in the big lie. The Republicans are. That's not a difference in flavor. That's a difference in kind, I think. Well, they, they sort of, I mean, like, look at Ukraine. Biden was a part of that 2014 business uh, that, that installed this government. And they're all, they're all kind of going on as, uh, with this version of this war that uh, omits, like, I don't, how can you, if you're the Biden administration, how can you, with a straight face, talk about the sovereignty of Ukraine, for, for example? And this seems to transcend the parties that, that it's like a, that you, you still have some of the, you still have the residuals of like this top-down way of determining reality and a denial of covert operations, which is still relevant today. It's like even, because this one, the Ukraine thing, I felt like got blown but it's still, it's like the cover story still needs to be honored almost as like a religious, it's almost like a religious thing. Like, the, God, don't, say, don't say that. The, the, the cover story of, of regime change in Ukraine in 2014, is that right, what, you're, right. what, what, what you're alluding to? Well, you know, I mean, call me an apologist. There's a difference between covert operations and an invasion with 100,000 troops. You know, there's a difference between covert operations and shelling civilian neighborhoods. You know, the idea that this is a provoked war, that 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 there's no causes belli. So, you know, I, 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 it's hard for me to see Russia as the victim here. You know, um, quite yeah, that wouldn't that. be exactly where I was going with it. But right. just to say that there's a there's a story here that it does involve covert operations, and there's still this relationship between the press and the and the the, the basically the wa- Watergate and the crusading journalist and the accountability for the national security state, the, the Woodward thing was, was, uh, is it interesting and it didn't really seem to stick. And now we're seeing this, the same sort of systems go forward where it's like, it's a top down way of running things. And well, right. The, the, I think managing the discussion as well. Yeah. I think that the, the, um, the culture of deference that the CIA enjoys, um, you know, is, is, is definitely with us. Um, and it was it was uh, maybe they enjoyed a little bit less in the 70s when you know, they were under investigation. But in the long run, you know, the press will go along with the CIA and, you know, not not position themselves independent of the secret agencies, especially when the government is under assault from an authoritarian movement that wants to overthrow the results of free elections. 
So, you know, and, 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 and the establishment, the Washington establishment has this big problem now because they have discredited themselves in the eyes of a lot of the people. And they, so they don't have the means of the same means of rallying public opinion against this threat. Now, if you say, well, that threat is just as great as the Democrats, I disagree. I'm not trying to formulate an argument about which is, <laughs> is, is worse or how you're going to quantify them. But to me, this, the, there is this establishment. There seems to be an establishment civil war in some ways that Trump represents uh, uh, some, some part of this, what's going on. But unlike Watergate, the fundamentals of the U.S. control over the global system is it, it, not as strong as it, as it was under Watergate. And so this, the way that this current uh, you know, s- s- crisis, moment of crisis, I think, for the, the project here uh, is going to play out is, you know, Watergate is really interesting to look at in terms of trying to look at the forces that were at play there and that shaped the outcome and the way that things unfolded, comparing that to now. I feel like the, the 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 factor that's really changed now is that the U.S. control over the global system is is not as strong, and the adversaries are actually stronger uh, than they were back then. China is in a much stronger position, and Russia, by virtue of its resources and nuclear arsenal, has to be you know handled uh, rationally. Yeah. So this is yeah. a and, and, change, and um, and you know and. And our economy isn't strong. I mean, COVID's part of that, but um, you know, the money wasted in the in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, 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 so our yes, our dominance of the of the political and economic system is definitely less. And our adversaries, certainly China, are stronger and are in a position to dictate outcomes or at least influence outcomes in a way that they were not at all um, during Watergate. Um, so the system that suffered a crisis in Watergate and recovered, you know, and regained its, uh, and regained its control <clears throat> is, is in worse position now, uh, and, and, and has less ability, you know, and, 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 and I think we're seeing some, you know, because we have a very hubristic system and we were so used to this position of dominance, we think that it's continued, you know, and now we see the Ukraine triumphalism fading and it's like, you know, you know, we picked a fight against a very strong foe in their backyard. And, you know, guess what? We may not win, you know. So uh, all the happy triumphalism, uh, you know, about defeating Russia, uh, you know, there's going to be a reckoning for that, just like there was, uh, you know, in, in Vietnam and Iran-Contra. Yeah. Uh, and that with Vietnam, it ends up being... You know, as strangely, the U.S. comes back stronger than ever. I don't know that the mechanisms are there this time. And so it's. Yeah. Uh, so there was one other guy I want to ask you about in your book, because he's a really fascinating character that I'm kind of that I have a, a little mini preoccupation with. And that's James McCord. Yeah. Um, he, it, the, his actions are in the Woodward Bernstein version of it. There are just things about what he does that just do not. And you could say this is something similar about Deep Throat, but you don't really talk about, you don't get too much into that. But his actions, McCord's actions, as this guy who is, above all is seems to be Mr. Professional Operator, loyalty to the mission. If he's charged with handling something like the Frank Olson assassination, this is a guy who is deemed to be the most solid uh, person capable of handling the most sensitive operations, you know, yeah. as handed down by his superiors. 
why does he do what he does? I mean, what, what is your take on his actions? Because he's he, a lot of people believe that he botched this thing on purpose. He put the tape on in a way that got exposed. He lied about taking it off. He argued, he overruled everybody else who said, let's call this off because this is dangerous. Well, well, he, he, I mean, Liddy wanted to go forward and, 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 and McCord wanted to go forward. Hunt was the one who had the doubts in the moment. Um, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's imponderables in this story and, and McCord's actions are strange. And, 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 and Rolando Martinez talked at length about this and he just said it didn't make any sense to him. He thought, he thought they were very careless. On the other hand, you know, the reaction of Hunt and McCord afterwards, the panicked reactions. I mean, you know, if one of them blew it on purpose, which was, you know, a hypothesis that people offered, I, I mean, I don't think that that panic was was fake. You know, McCord calls his wife and tells her to burn all the papers connecting him to the CIA. You know, was that part of the plan to blow it and then, you know, have to set a fire at your house? I, that just didn't make sense to me. Um, yeah, so, it's, it's very weird. It's very weird. So in but, the absence of some evidence that would say that is what happened, I have to think that that it wasn't. And I go back to, you know, just because these guys were pros didn't mean that they didn't fuck up sometimes. And Hunt was a fuck up, you know, he, 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 he had that record. Um, so, you know, I think that, I think that they were just overconfident, but, you know, McCord is a strange guy because also he has this back channel to Helms after he's arrested. And in the summer and fall of, of 72, he's sending letters to Helms saying, or to the director's office saying, look, here, you know, here's my legal strategy. Here's what I'm going to do. You know, and Helms doesn't give those letters to the FBI, which probably saved his job, um, but but showed that there was this coordination uh, that was going on. And so, you know, McCord's role uh, as a former, you know, senior officer in the Office of Security, the CIA's internal police force, you know, he is a very trusted hand with very serious responsibilities. When Nixon visits the CIA in March 1969, when he first comes into office, it's McCord who is in charge of presidential security. So that's a very serious job, you know. And Helms writes him a little note and says, "Good job, Jim." You know, so he is a very he is a very you know high powered player. Um, I mean, tell me more about like, do you have anything else about why it would? Be well, he what the way that he not only the fact that some of the burglars thought like, why is this guy doing this? And then the way that he gets caught, you know, as he does, as you say, there are the the strange parts about it, which to me suggest, okay, this wasn't something that I I feel like this was a rolling sort of thing. And that the way that it played out wasn't necessarily how the way it was planned. And that maybe this was partly to get the bungling was built into the baked into the cake in order to get some leverage potentially on Nixon. And then for other reasons, it snowballs into this, Hard to figure that out exactly, mm. but Helms was it was a, was a, or not Helms? McCord had also been a part of. He he worked r- with the Bay of Pigs uh, operation in some ways and had worked with Hunt in the past, probably more than was admitted, uh, almost certainly more than he admitted. He was involved in those Fair Play for Cuba committee operations, like he was a guy who was running that uh, in the U.S. That that would seem to have been what Oswald was engaging in in New Orleans, like. 
if he was charged with undermining Fair Play for Cuba committee uh, domestically, illegally, which of course doesn't really matter because they're not supposed to operate domestically, uh, then the court is really involved in, in sensitive matters. Additionally, you've pointed out that the Office of Security was the entity that handled blackmail and, and other people have written like Hogan, Jim Hogan, I think most reliably, Peter Dale Scott writes a bit about it. And there's that Kolodny book, mm-hmm. uh, Silent Coup. But they deal with the sex angle of uh, the, the DNC office and uh, Oliver, right? Oliver is the That's guy right. who's... Right. Or, okay. Yeah. Okay. And so, so, and so McCord seems to have been in, related to that in some sort of way. Well, yeah, I think, the, I, I think security. That, so what was he doing? I mean, the Office of Security um, and the security research staff, which is a little kind of archive of suspected sub- subversives that's maintained within the CIA. And, and, and McCord's good friend, Lee Pennington, um, is a CIA informant, and they jointly keep this. Uh, uh, archive of material on suspected subversives. And the the information that McCord was obtaining through the burglary team was being fed back to the security research staff. That's why when McCord told his wife to burn all the papers, she called Lee Pennington and he came and helped her because he knew the material that had to be destroyed. That was the material that McCord had been feeding him. So that was a very, you know, that was a very important connection. The fact denied at the time, but as you point out correctly, McCord did have involvement in Cuba operations. When when three CIA people were captured, um, arrested in in uh, in Havana for eavesdropping on the Chinese embassy there, um, McCord was put in charge of developing a plan to break them out of the prison where they were held. Um, the men were eventually ransomed in the Bay of Pigs deal. Um, and so the plan was never carried out, but it was McCord and his men who were casing the prison. And in fact, they had obtained layout, they had obtained the floor plans to the prison and they were developing a plan for going in and snatching these guys and getting them out of there. So again, a very sensitive uh, you know, assignment that Helms definitely knew about. Um, so their relationship uh, you know, went way back. And you know, that was McCord's kind of shadowy role he's he's not really emphasized you know in the at the time he was not really you know a burglar people paid you know hunt got hunt and liddy really got the lion's share of attention as kind of notorious covert operators and all that mccord kind of blended into the background well they were and they were so clownish that they drew attention to themselves i mean they're both kind of nuts <laughs> liddy's even liddy makes hunt seem reasonable <laughs> the, the mccord business to me is fascinating and especially well, well one angle and I, I think that you mentioned this it's a little tricky for me because i've been looking at all this watergate material i'm pretty sure this comes up in your book he was also involved in this wisp agency uh which was like for emergency preparation like uh continuity of government type stuff where he would be rounding up subversives and engage putting in a censorship regime in the event of some sort of national emergency. I mean, that is the pinnacle of like a state security. Uh, it's, and you've written about the office of security a lot. You write about it in the ghost, right on Angleton. So this is a, is endowed with a lot of power and, and access to secrets because they need to be, that's kind of one of their main things is not all these crimes the government is committing. They, you, they actually do need to be aware of where the potentially damaging uh, leaks could come from. And so you have to have people that know these things. And McCord seems like one of these people. Yeah. He, yeah. He, 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 he definitely was. And, um, he was 
one of the things that his assignments um, in the Nixon years was they were worried about anti-war radicals attacking CIA facilities. And starting in 67, McCord leads this effort called Project Merrimack um, to harden up all of their facilities and to anticipate attacks and prevent attacks on CIA facilities. So, yeah, they, this is very high level planning. You know, when I went to do, do this research, the CIA compiles a big memo after the, after, the, after the burglary, and they're trying to understand, you know, what was going on. And of course, Helms isn't telling them. So they're sort of flying in the dark. And one of the things they do is they go back and they look at McCord's business. McCord had retired in August 1970 and opened up a private security firm. And basically what he did was, you know, the CIA was his hiring hall. As soon as people retired, they would go there and say, what can I do in retirement to make a little money? You know, because they had forced retirement. You know, you had to get out. Um, and so what they say, well, you know, go to work for Jim McCord. And so McCord had hired like a CIA all-star team, you know, before Watergate and with all these referrals from the CIA itself. It's another form of institutional support that he got. So Earl Harder, a guy named Earl Harder, he was like, he, he was the guy they should have sent to, to Watergate. He was the master of the surreptitious entry, could pick any lock, could break any. Earl Harder retires. What does he do? He goes interviews with Jim McCord. Uh, 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 Dr. Gunn, the guy who concocted the poison pills that they were going to kill Castro with. He was kind of a wizard of the technical services division, straight out of James Bond. This guy could come up with any weapon you wanted. You know, he was the one who developed the poison pen to kill Castro. You know, when Dr. Gunn retired, what did he do? He went across the street. He went to work for Jim McCord. So that was, it was just like a little branch of the CIA, just, you know, off the books, uh, you know, go over here and you can do the same thing you were doing and uh, we'll all be happy. So that was, you know, a, a sign of how well placed he was in the scheme of things. So before we wrap up here, uh, I would like you to tell people where they can get your book and why uh, Watergate still matters 50 years later. So uh, Scorpion's Dance is available in all, you know, the usual places, Amazon. I would encourage people to buy it through Barnes and Noble and cut Amazon and Jeff Bezos out of the deal. Um, you can get the audiobook version, which is available at Macmillan Audio. Um, and it's very good if you're an audiobook fan. I don't consume my books that way, but the, the, the version that is read by a guy named John Pruden uh, is very good. John Pruden also did the audiobook of The Ghost. So if you like that one, you'll like his, his his reading of it. And there's a Kindle as well. So uh, you know, depending on how you like your books, you can you can get it in any in any form there. And you know, I think the why now, you know, it, it's the hidden hand of the of the CIA and how it can figure in events. I don't think there's a literal, you know, one-to-one translation to our situation today, but to see how the CIA was so influential in what involved in what happened and was able to keep it entirely or not entirely, but off the public record for a while to delay, to obfuscate, you know, the Watergate period really shows that power of a clandestine service to do that. And that's just, that's a perennial lesson. If we're going to have, you know, a super powerful CIA, you got to know that's the way it works. I agree. And I think we really need to look at the way we're going to set our government up because uh, it's 
this seems to be a quite anti-democratic institution and it's very easy to see that and yet it's also vested with enormous power and so it's going to have to be grappled with one way or another i recommend people check out your book i've read a lot about watergate and written about watergate I, I, I enjoyed your listening to it. It's good for people who are not steeped in the material or if you are, because it does give a good overview of these characters. And if you just know the basics of Watergate and the basics of the Kennedy assassination, you don't have to be super detail oriented. It gives a great picture of the way these characters relate and what they were sort of grappling with. So I think your book, Stone's Oliver Stone's Nixon is another way to look at the strangeness of Watergate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Dell Scott's writing, uh, Jim Hogan's books book on Watergate. Shane O'Sullivan's is good, but your book deserves to be up there with those. So uh, I'm I'm grateful for you for writing it, and I'm happy that you came on. So thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me, Aaron. It's no surprise that we're unreal. The work's done now. See if you can really know what you. No surprise that we're unreal The work's been done, now see if you can I hope that you all appreciated this discussion on Nixon, Helms, and Watergate. After we stopped recording, Jeff told me an anecdote about Nixon's special assistant and friend, Frank Gannon, the guy who was the chief editorial assistant for RN, the memoirs of Richard Nixon. According to Gannon, He and Nixon would occasionally enhance their conversations with some whiskey and start talking about Watergate. In his memoirs, and in Haldeman's as well, they recount that Nixon always believed he was set up and that Watergate was some kind of palace coup. When he would sit around drinking with Gannon, he went even further. Nixon told Gannon that the people responsible for his resignation were the same people who killed the Kennedy brothers. So in my estimation, it is pretty amazing that Nixon, from his ultimate insider's position of power, would come to a conclusion pretty much congruous with that of our friend Peter Dale Scott, a scholar who spent over half a century studying the obscure dimensions of power and politics. This is why I go further in American Exception, the book. I think that you have to explain why Watergate led to Ford's Halloween massacre, which marked a milestone in the dominance of neoconservatism in the Republican Party, and ultimately to the rise of Reagan. This sort of serious analysis is not something that American political science does well, but one of the only interesting poli-sci works on Watergate that I've seen was on Nixon and his level of presidential activity. As I recall this paper, and I'm not sure if it ever got published because I saw this years ago, But this paper found that Nixon was basically stopped, uh, or he basically stopped himself, regularly attending meetings and briefings right around the time when his vice president, Spiro Agnew, resigned and Gerald Ford became the new vice president. Nixon used to joke that Agnew was his assassination insurance policy, that with him as vice president, no one would assassinate him. So assuming that this research in this paper is sound, Nixon did seem to understand what was happening around him. Building on Peter Dell Scott's work, I argue in American Exception that the key motive missed by the other Watergate revisionists was the nationalist and protectionist economic policies that Nixon wanted to pursue. These were very much the opposite of what Rockefeller and his brand new trilateral commission wanted for the new post-Bretton Woods international capitalist regime. In trilateral commission reports, they state candidly that their enemy is nationalism. 
This would obviously be third world nationalism, like Allende nationalizing copper and declaring Chilean debts void. But it also applied to the U.S. Essentially, no statesman could be allowed to operate on the basis of a conception of a national interest that did not equate the national interest of the United States with the interests of transnational capital. The oil shocks, Watergate, the Volcker shocks, the third world debt crisis, these were all orchestrated by the pinnacle of power in the U.S. to bring about the Wall Street uh, Treasury bill petrodollar regime, a system that gave U.S. capitalism a degree of structural power over the global economy that no empire had ever attained in human history. And it really consolidates shortly into Reagan's term. As such, the oligarchy atop the U.S. empire is now above politics. Both parties are feckless and unpopular. After Trump's election, the Democrats and corporate media spent years obsessing over the baseless Russiagate hoax. And after Biden's victory, we had the bizarre January 6th spectacle in which Trump supporters swarmed into the Capitol, uh, which was quite strangely left largely unguarded. So respectfully, I have to disagree with Jeff on this one point and argue that both parties are invested in numerous big lies. And in fact, mainstream journalism and history have become a tapestry of big lies. This is in part a result of the post-World War II decision to pursue empire covertly while still retaining a democratic facade. To paraphrase Ralph McGahee, famous CIA dissident, yesterday's fake news is today's fake history. So let us try and sort this out together. If you are a new American Exception listener, please consider subscribing on Patreon. We have lots of material that you can't find anywhere else, offering deep dives into the dark side of the lawless U.S. empire. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for his audio production, Casey Moore for his episode art, and Mock Orange for the music. We are still living in the shadow of Watergate, so mind the darkness, friends. Surprise!